bit good. This week he's been recording again with his label's most controversial band, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. people have got misconceptions about what a record producer does. They think that the record producer works the desk, or they think that he pushes faders and things like that. But in actual fact, record, I mean, you can see all of this equipment. I, I don't uh, touch anything. Maybe I twiddle the occasional knob. In a way, I am the artist's uh, puppet, because they come to me with their ideas, and I use all of this and, and all of my experience to make whatever dreams they have or whatever ideas they have come true. We're at the start of a new era in recording because you have a guy playing a bass guitar. It's not necessary that he plays the bass guitar. We can do anything with sound. You do anything with sound? Yes, we can do anything with any, sound. Any, we can do any, anything. We can do anything with sound. With sound. With sound. With sound. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome! This is 80s Ogilvy Random Questions with Trevor Horn. Welcome to a new season of 80s Ogilvy and it's... Oh, pauses to check. Season 6? Season 6 of 80s Ogilvy. Wow, doesn't time fly? And another Random Questions episode which is basically an extended quickfire round the duration um, and what a guest uh, this is a real back at this moment as I mentioned in the interview um, doing all these interviews with music producers of the 80s so many great producers that there's always two that I feel I'm not complete until I get there's many many producers I still want to interview but there's two I have to get and Trevor is one of them so it's a big big moment to get to speak to him and it's a, it's a great interview and a huge thanks to Gibb, which I'll give at the end of the interview. But this is this is the interview with, with the great Trevor Horn. Enjoy. The interview starts now. Hello. Hello. Can you see me? I can see you. How are you, Trevor? <laughs> I probably look a bit rough because I haven't had a chance to have a shower today. I think it meant I looked a bit rough. I, I, I looked a bit rough. I came back from the gym this morning and I've not stopped working all day. How are you doing? I admire the fact you go to the gym. It's been a while since I've been to the gym. How often do you go? I try and go five times a week. Really? How much do you do each time? I only do 45 minutes each time. 45 minutes, okay. So how are you doing? How's life? I'm fine. I can't complain. Working hard. What's your podcast all about then? 80sography. Um, It's about the 80s, man. It's about the 80s. Uh, hence interviewing right. you about your book oh, I've, right. I've interviewed a course, lot of yeah. people that you've worked with like Julian Mendelssohn, uh, Stephen Lipson, Gary Langan so there was there's two people I felt like I had to interview at some point and that's you and Niall Rogers because I couldn't do interviews with producers of the 80s right. and not have you and Niall 
So that was the idea. But anyway, the book, the book is fantastic. Um, oh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, will there be a volume two? Because it's one of those books that as I was reading it, I was thinking like I was checking how many pages were left because I didn't want it to end. And it covers a certain number of songs, but obviously you've done so many more. I know. It's funny. Somebody said to me, oh, do you always have such a problem making records? And I was like, well, you know, the ones I'm going to write about in the book are always going to be the ones that, you know, had some kind of adventure attached to them. You know, the ones where, hey, we've got a great song. Well, we did made the record. Everything went fine. I can't remember that many of those, but uh, they did happen. I was going to say, what percentage of the time did it all go smoothly? I and mean, was there part of it where you were looking almost to have the problems because that's where the good stuff comes from? I suppose I was always pushing the envelope. I was always trying to get it better, you know. It's Julian Mendelssohn. Okay. Julian Mendelssohn. Yeah. yeah. In the interview, he said, just re-listening to it right now, but before he came on, that if there was a hard way to do things, you'd find it. <laughs> does, does that does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> Well, I suppose it's because Julian liked to take the easy way. It's bloody hard working for him. Yeah, he was obsessive. It was a bit like me and Gary with our engineering. We were obsessive, but he was obsessive. And Trevor would always take pretty much the longest route to get a result. That's the way he worked. I didn't choose the hard way on purpose. I was always trying to make things better. You know, I got, you know, Julian mixed relax. Very funny because he worked on it for a few, he mixed it in Sam East and Steve Lipson had been mixing it up to that point. But for some reason, I, I just wanted, you know, the, the the cushion of knowing somebody really good. I, I hadn't, I'd only worked with Steve up to a point, you know, at that point we played. And, but anyway, Julian started mixing it and after a couple of hours, it didn't sound very good. And I said, Julian, you don't like this, do you? And he went, not one of your best. Relax. You said that about yeah. relax. Not one of your best. <laughs> I was like, oh, come on, man. You could have, it's a fucking drum machine and it's static, so you've got to push it and pull it, you know? You've got to mess around with it a bit and make it go up and down. And in the end, you got it to sound great. I said, some people, if relax doesn't please you, I don't know what will. Yeah, well, the engineers were quite miserable back in the day especially if you before you had a hit you know engineers always used to i always used to get in their nerves because i i was always trying to do daft things you know and uh they get pissed off with me i remember when we were working on video kill the radio star we went to rack studios and i don't know what we were going to do i think uh we were going to do one overdub or something like that and uh the, the guy on the desk, you know, the engineer, we'd never worked with him before. And, you know, he pushed up the faders on the first. We worked on a bit on Clean Clean, and then we worked a bit on something else. And then we pushed up Video Killed to Media Star. And after he played it, I remember he looked and he said, this one's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but is there not the opposite? If everyone goes, oh, that's great, that's great. How do you know when something's great? If everyone's saying everything you do is brilliant, how can you tell? Well, you know, you always, you you know, when you're working on something, and it's, particularly if it's good, you always get a bit of studio fever sometimes. We used to call it studio fever, where you think it's so great, you know. Mm. It's too, oh, you know, you start doing a B-side, and then pretty soon it becomes, oh, it's too good to be a B-side. It should have been on side A, but we only had a day, you know. So, 
you kind of know if something's really good, but then you know if something's really, really good. It doesn't happen very often, though. Yeah. Okay. We'll start with the random I'm... questions. I've got them here. I've got my daughter's um, oh my goodness. strawberry pencil case, just to prove they are random questions, okay? Oh, wow. Um, I want to try and ask questions, because you've done a book promotion, right? So you've been asked yeah. a lot of questions, done a lot of interviews, so I want to keep it fresh for you. So if there's a question you've been asked a lot, feel free to point it out and I'll skip it, okay? okay. Keep it fresh for you. What would you say is the question you've been asked the most on this promotional tour? What's the favourite record you've ever made? Okay, all right. So let's so try the first question here. Okay, so what's the favourite record you've ever made? Oh. <laughs> Okay, no, forget it, right? 12 inch yeah. mixes, right? You mentioned yeah. in the book how much you enjoy doing them. Yeah. What would you say is the secret to a good 12 inch mix? Well, what changed my whole, whole, um, I started doing 12 inch mixes and then I went to Paradise Garage and I heard that huge sound system. And so whenever we did 12 inch mixes, I was used to, you know, because I normally most of the time I worked on small monitors, you know, Steve and I, you know, that's why I've still got my hearing. But for 12 inches, we used to put them up bit on the big monitors, you know, and uh, and blast it because that's the way it was going to be listened to. And, and in a way, it was a funny kind of way of being like, yes, you could be sort of prog on a 12 inch, you know, where you could kind of give it a whole big intro and do all mm. it was it's all up to the build up, you know, it's all building towards something, you know, and uh, and when I realized it was such a sense of freedom from the formula that I had to stick to so closely with the radio and everything, the singles, suddenly being able to sort of break out was, I loved it. So I had real fun making 12 inches for a while. So that makes sense because of your love of Yes and in the 80s, it's basically a 12 inch mix is 80s prog. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And what was your favourite 12 inch mix you did? I think the mix that's on uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome uh, of War. Oh, okay. Yes. I think that's one of the best ones Steve and I ever did. Warren Hyde. Yeah. Man has a sense for the discovery of beauty. How rich is the world for one who makes use of this discovery? Beauty must have power over man. After the end of the war, I want to devote myself to my thoughts for five to ten years and to writing them down. come and go. What remains are only the values of culture. Biggest diva moment witnessed in the studio. <laughs> How do you define diva? Just define it to me. Somebody just playing up, acting the big star, just being a pain. I asked Gary Langan this question, and his answer was John Anderson. He <laughs> mentioned the book, how much they didn't get on, which I found, having had the interview with him, made me laugh out loud. Because Oh, when you saw in the book about him taking his finger off the fader. Yes, oh, the right, just the right, right moment before he's told him that, yeah. Oh, John, I've maligned John, I feel bad. <laughs> Biggest diva moment you experienced in the studio? Oh, John Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Just the first or second time? Both times. John, John and I, again, I, he, he was an utter diva. 
He, I, he was not 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 fun to work with, and it was like, look, mate, you, you're the singer in the band, okay? You just just quit all the uh, the big timeless on me. Uh, do you know I don't like to t- say bad things about anybody? Uh, you know, I've had my diva moments. You know. Okay, what was your biggest? Chris Squire was five hours late to the oh, studio. Yes. <laughs> it's in the book. Yeah. Diva moments. You know. So remind us what you said to him because it's brilliant. What was that? What you said? Was to it him? Box Fizz could have played it better or something? <laughs> Didn't you mention Chicory Tip? Chicory Tip. <laughs> Okay, next. So sorry to focus on the negative, but worst song you produced in the eighties. <laughs> we got some, we got some more positive questions coming up. I promise. Worst song I produced in the eighties. My opinion, the, the, mm-hmm. the worst song. Sorry, I didn't produce the worst song. Oh. <laughs> okay, I... your least favorite. One that was just merely good. There must it's, have been some like when you're doing an album, like it's the ninth and tenth track, right? You've got the three or four that you start with. Sorry, no, 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 no. On 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 the ABC album, uh, every track was good. I didn't, I didn't have bad tracks on albums. I Frankie on the double album was way. there some of the the Frankie tracks you thought were a bit like "Wish You Were Here" or "I Wish You Were Here." Well, it was a bit self indulgent. That was seriously probably it was like somebody's solo track. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it was the lads, but they had a fun time doing it. And it had a certain thing to it. You're right. That that was, uh, but I I don't. Uh, I was kind of like that. So yeah, no, I agree. With that. That's I like the worst track. I'm, track. I'm trying to think of a worst track. No, I can't think. No, of okay, that's pretty impressive. Okay, if you could have anyone cover one of your '80s songs, who would it be, and what song would you choose them to do? Obviously, you'd reimagine the '80s, but if you could pick anybody to sing one of your songs, mm. <laughs> really making you think here. Yeah? Bob Dylan singing Old River Lonely Heart. Oh, right. Lonely Heart. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. Lonely Heart. <laughs> Always live your life. You see the future. Yeah, Bob. Bob could have done a great job of that. I, I, but I think he would have taken some persuading. Lonely Heart. How much has being a bass player informed you as a producer? Well, you see, bass players have to be unselfish. Because they're the support, they're the structure that everybody, part of the structure that everybody else plays on. So while the guitar player is getting his rocks off up front, you're behind playing the girders that make up the structure that he's sort of sitting on, you know. So it's you have to be quite sort of unselfish to do that. And in order to, in order to be able to do that and really enjoy it, right, Playing bass is only fun in a really good band where everybody else is really good. Uh, so bass players end up quite often sort of directing people because they tend to be the more sensible and less uh, 
guitar player. Yeah, you, you know, I, I I really felt the difference when when uh, our, we were touring with the Art of Noise, and I had one song where I played the breath controller, and I didn't have to play the bass, and I used to look forward to it, right? Because all I had to, you know, I'd be ba ba da 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 da. da. Dreams called Dream in Color, I think, and. Uh, and I realized, you know, when, when I played it, you know, we, it was started with just me and Anne, you know, with a, with a piano and no rhythm. And I'd play this part and I could phrase it however I wanted to. I could, I could hang back on it. She would follow me and then I could lead in and then they would start the computer. I came in with it, you know, with the rhythm, I could play it any way I wanted to on the beat. Well, when you're playing the bass, you can't do that. You have to play in time, mm. right? If you don't play in time, you'll ruin it for the other people playing on top of it. And not having that responsibility and just being able to phrase anything the way I wanted to made me think, well, that's why trumpet players and sax players very rarely lead bands because they're off in the fucking stratosphere, man. <laughs> <laughs> it makes the thing you about your responsibility. Yeah, no, I get that because you've got to be on it the whole song. You can't yeah. just dip in and out. Yeah, absolutely. From the get go, generally. Yeah. The thing about your bass playing though is incredibly m- melodic. Because I think of like things like a song like "Handheld in Black and White Dollar," where oh, like yeah. a lot of the time the bass is kind of rooted in rhythm. Yeah, and and your yeah. songs kind of propel the melody fo- forward. They kind of out front. Yeah. That's incredibly melodic. It's like a hook. Your bass lines are hooks. Well, on hand, yeah. Funny enough, that I did. I did play bass on that in black and white. Yeah. Dang, dang, remember. Do jackal do that. Do jackal do that. I was into a bit of thumb slapping, and I did tune the bottom string. I didn't always play bass on my stuff. Yeah, I didn't, you know. I didn't, obviously didn't play bass on ABC apart from on, uh, um, you know, n- not on the intro and the, and, and the flowery bits where you can hear the, 
the fretless, but when you know when the song's going, I played the bass. Dead simple park, you know. But I hope and I pray that maybe someday you'll walk in the room with my heart. Add and subtract, but as a matter of fact, now that you're gone, I still want you back. Remembering, surrendering the kindest cuts, the cruelest part. All of my heart. What a song that is all, all my heart. Uh Stephen Lipson, okay. Um yeah. who I've interviewed. So you <laughs> got in the book where you're making the propaganda LP and he was wearing a plastic sheep's head and speaking yeah. through a vocoder. Yeah. Did he do both at the same time, or would he just like lift up the head to speak through the vocoder? No, the, the head was a different time, I think. Okay. <laughs> he had a the sheep's head phase and then it moves to the vocoder. Well, but... the head came up with other points. The head was so fucking weird, man. <laughs> What did he say? Did he? I didn't know when I interviewed him. I didn't, didn't know about that. I found that out from reading your book. Like, if I wish I had known when I interviewed I him. I hope I haven't got into trouble with him. I haven't spoken to him for a while over that. Where did he get the sheep's head from? I've got no idea. It was sheepy, <laughs> it was called. Did you ever have any stir crazy moments in the studio yourself when you went a bit loopy? We all had stir crazy moments. When we were when we were doing crazy, we went through a phase of having that. Uh, <laughs> dry ice mixes where we had a dry ice machine a smoke machine i think it was and we 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 had dance lights and we'd suddenly fill the whole control room with smoke and whatever and then you know we did that quite a few times and then the maintenance department complained <laughs> that there were oil deposits on the board so oh, i had to man. stop Oh, man. Yeah, you get mad because you're just spending day after day after day after day in the studio and you're looking for some kind of... You know, when, when we were mixing um, Owner of Alone, uh, that Yes album, 90125, me and Gary Langan, I had all kinds of bits and pieces. I had a glove puppet and a torch. And sometimes we, I'd say, hey, let's have a puppet mix. And the puppet would perform Zong you know, <laughs> with a torch on it, you know. Maybe not all the way through, but it was, you know, anything to sort of relieve the craziness, but, the monotony of the same song over and over again while you <laughs> inched it towards the finish line, you know? Were artificial stimulants involved at some point during this? Or... I never took cocaine. Okay. I took cocaine once in my life and uh, I came out of a bedroom. My late wife saw me and started to yell at me. And she, in front of a load of people at the party, she said, if you start taking cocaine, I will divorce you on the spot. So she knew taking it just by how you looked? No, it, it was because there was some left on my nose. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I walked all the way from uh, Edgware back to uh, uh, Blomfield Road by the canal in anger. And yeah. obviously the effect of the blow. So I never... I never got into it. It spared me a lot of stuff in the uh, coffee was my, you know, like I drink lots of coffee. Uh, but I saw I saw cocaine wreck so many people's lives and careers because the problem is when you take cocaine, you drink as well and you, mm. you know, you smoke, drink, do blow. And, you know, I always used to go to bed and get up the next morning, be ready to go in the studio and Dealing with people who, when you get up in the morning, you know, ready to go, they're still in the kitchen from the night before, you know. It's going to be great, man. Rock <laughs> out, Trev. That'll be miserable, you know. 
Fucking hell, you guys have been up since last. I can't believe it, you know. Oh, no, we're going to play great. Come on, we want to get going. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> they shit, you know, because mm. they've been up all night. They're used yeah, yeah. to You know, I went through a few of those. Gary had left by that point. I mean, they weren't, you know, every, everyone was much more uh, being good on Dino 125. That was the follow-up album. So when you've got a situation like with Gary and John Anderson, where two people, it's often in bands, you've got two members of the band that hate each other. How do you as a producer, you're like the dad with two kids, how do you negotiate that? What is your technique for getting... My people? technique for negotiating that, so Gary, you better fucking watch it, man. Otherwise, there'll be trouble, because you can't keep doing that. It frightens me when you do that, you know? Mm. Gary and I had to just keep going with John. There was no other way. And that was Gary's frustration. You see, the problem was that John, John, God bless him, for whatever reason, and he had his reasons, didn't uh, didn't want us comping his vocal. And so it being the days of analog, we had to uh, we had to keep dropping in on the same track. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was heartbreaking sometimes because you'd have two really good lines, and then. You know, the, the tape opera would catch one of the lines, you know, and the drop in. So we'd have to redo that line as well. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. this is analog tape, yeah. right? Not fucking computers and all the modern fantastico stuff. And so it could be literally heartbreaking. You know, you're going around, you've, you've you had something really good, you've replaced it, but you know it's not as good as the one that you lost. And you have to keep going forward. And Gary was just voicing the frustration. John could be a, John could be a bit sharp, you know. But ultimately, there wasn't anything to handle because Gary was always too good with the uh, with his finger on the button. And and of course, he was a real pro, so he just kept going, you know. Yeah. What was what was his attitude to John Anderson's attitude, attitude towards you? Because obviously, for the drama album, you, you basically effectively replaced him. You were the singer, right? Yeah. So was there any kind of resentment from him to you? Oh, yeah, of course, voice there of course there was. Yeah. Yeah, but but that sort of, I mean, some of it wasn't too bad, you know. It wasn't like every minute of every session was a total pain in the neck with him. There were, there were some moments when it flowed a little bit, you know, um, uh, and it was it was a difficult... John came in at the end, you see. We'd, we'd almost finished the album, and... Uh, it was me that wanted to bring him back initially because I wanted it to be back being yes, because, you know, I thought it would do better and have more longevity if it was yes. And it sounded like yes anyway. And it still felt like it, need the ma- need, it needed the main character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We had some brilliant stuff. I mean, we had Leave It. And, you know, we just put John on Leave It. You know what I mean? Trevor Raven and me sung the whole thing and Chris sung the whole thing. Um, but I, I gradually got my bits got wiped off. John replaced <laughs> all my bits. Goodbye, 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 bad. Was it originally all me? All right, okay. Yeah, but John replaced me. God bless him. Uh, so uh, John made a huge difference when he came back. However prickly he may have been, he was a really good leading man. If you know I was going to ask. I was going to ask about "Leave It" because I think it's a brilliant track. It sounds quite complicated. Again, it's one, it was one of the ones that Julian Mendelssohn said that took fucking ages to make. That it was a nightmare. So uh, it was yeah, yeah. How long did it take to make that? Because it sounds really complicated. All the voices. 
Well, it took a. We worked on that one up in Wilsdon, um, uh, and it started um, because I've I, I've got a writing credit on that because I wrote all the lyrics apart from "Leave It," and they had "Leave It," "Dam Bam Badla Dam Bam," and they had it with a drum machine as well. So they it was like they were prepared to do it with a drum machine, and do you know I can't remember. If I came up with, I can see no sense of measure, no illusion as we take refuge in young man's pleasure, breaking down the dreams we make real. I've got a feeling I came up with that because I thought the song was about being unfaithful on the road. And so I wrote all the lyrics about that. One down, one to go down the town, one more show. Uptown, you're giving away what you never get back. No phone can take your place. Do you know what I mean? We have more intrigue than a court of kings. Ah, uh, leave it, you know. So I, I think there was a bit of. They weren't very initially. People weren't sure about MacArthur Park and the driving snow, but it sang so well, so it stayed in. One down, one to go. Another town, one more show. Downtown, give it away, but you never came back. Take your place, you know what I mean. We have the same But I remember making that track as being one of the most fun parts of making that record. When Chris and Trevor went out and sang that intro, they just sang it a cappella, you know what I mean? And then tracked themselves. It was like, fuck me, that's good, you know. And then the doom do 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 that. I, I can't remember how we started that, and suddenly that just took off. And I thought that was great too, you know. Like, uh, so it was a, it was a real fun time, and the violin player coming in and playing that funny violin, and Alan White stuck. You know, Alan White was like uh, didn't play drums on it, you know. He but he played all the drums pretty much. That on well, no, all those drum fields, that's all of him. Mm. on a keyboard i mean i thought they were amazing when you first played that too, like the one that comes in the least you know you don't expect it yes and 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 i made sure the things were huge i had all these samples you know alan took to the samples like dr water so that's a that was a fun track i really enjoyed that Godling Cream Cry, another masterpiece. I absolutely, absolutely adore that song. I've always loved it, but I've become kind of semi-obsessed with that song. Is it? You know, you can get 12-inch mixes that people do on YouTube. Yeah. Somebody's done like a 12-minute version of Cry. I think based on the seven-minute extended version, which I assume you did on the uh, History Mix. Is that your 12-inch mix? No, I think Lol did that. With, okay, Lol did that. Uh, JJ. What, any remembrances about Making Cry? Oh, well, I remember exactly what happened with Making Cry. I met Lol and Kevin in New York. We had a great time together. And I was working with Foreigner. They were editing um, uh, Synchronicity yes. the video. And they were bored stiff. 
And so one night, and in, 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 you know, we used to mess around. I used to mess around with the TV. You, you know, I used to do transforming with the TV because uh, the American TVs had uh, these click channel changes. So I w- I'd start beatboxing with the channel changer in the hotel room and, and everybody liked it. So we kind of wrote this thing called Hit the Box. We went into the studio one night, the studio I was working with Foreigner, and we made this uh, track called Hit the Box. And it was pretty mad and had me doing the TV and stuff on it, you know. And I remember because when I came in on the Monday, we did it on a Saturday night when I went, when I reported for work with Foreigner, they were waiting for me. And they said, we heard that track that you did on Saturday night. I was pretty annoyed with the assistant for playing it to them. Fucking awful, right? (laughs) It was kind of experimental, you know what I mean? Mm. But anyway, we were meant to get together to finish it. And so we got together about five months later in Surrey Sound, I think it was, to finish it. And when we started, you know, Lo and Kevin were talking about crazy ideas and stuff like that. And I was so bored with all that stuff by that point. I'm sick of it, you know, fragmented stuff, doing random stuff with it. I just had it. And I said, can't we do something? Haven't you got a song? Can't we just do a song? And they said, a song? And I remember Kevin said, wow, that's really weird. You want to do a song? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to do a song. Have you got anything? And Lord said, we got this thing we started 20 years ago and played Cry. And it was great. started doing it it's with the most complicated arrangement ever i mean was we play it live and we have to we have to be in training because if somebody loses it it's because only three chords you see but we present them in every single different combination like a you know it, it came out really well it came out uh, like i uh, nigel gray engineered it you know police's engineer and I always thought he got lol the best guitar sound I ever heard. He Amazing play. guitar. I'm going to ask you about that. The guitar sound is incredible. How did you get That's that sound? Playing. 
I don't know, Nigel did. Nigel really, Nigel produced the first two police albums, you know. I mean, you listen to the original of uh, Don't Stand So Close To Me, you know. Mm. It's, Nigel was brilliant because he was a doctor and he was a really good uh, sound engineer. And he did it, he initially did it for fun, you know. He had Surrey sound and it was him that really came up with those guitar sounds, you know, all those, he put every single thing on the guitar that he had, you know. So, and also, you, of course, you're in the video as well. So when did that get suggested that you uh, end the video? Oh, when I did the silly thing with a note at the end. Yes. Law said, if there's a video, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to mime that note. <laughs> of course, they did a great video for it, which, which helped. Yeah, it's a brilliant video. And also Stephen Lipson's in it as well, because I interviewed Kevin Godley not so long ago and um, re-watching it, I didn't realise that Stephen Lipson was in it until the very end. And I thought, that's Stephen Lipson. Yeah, Steve was in it because he did, uh, Steve did quite a lot of the programming on it, you know. I think some of the things, you know, he sort of took over from the Nigel a bit. He may have even mixed it. I can't remember. Are you going to do a reimagining in the 80s too? Well, I'm doing a record for Deutsche Grammophon. The sort of tentative title is Ancient and Modern. And it's a, it's some of them, you know, I've done another version of Slaves of the Rhythm. I never thought I would. And I've done another version of uh, Under the Lonely Heart, with all with uh, different singers. So it's Rick Astley singing it, actually. Who? Rick Astley. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So what kind of style of music is it? Is it more, is it still orchestral? Is it? No, it's not orchestral. It's sort of more acoustic-y. Okay. I'm being a bit coy because it's, it's quite unusual. Is there any chance of doing a version of Cry? <laughs> if I could think of somebody to sing it. I always, I always imagine that with a female vocal. That would sound amazing. Especially the high bits at the end. Actually, it's, you know, it's not a bad idea. Most unexpected person to say they love your music. I think back in the day, it was when Paul Morley really liked Dollar. Oh, yes. That was black and white. Yeah, that was sort of unexpected. Because he certainly hadn't liked the Buggles. Right. (laughs) Uh, The best story anecdote moment that didn't make it into the book. Ah! God, there were loads of anecdotes that never made it into the book. I took them out. Or anecdotes. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, well, if they didn't make it in, I'm trying to think of, of something that uh, won't get me into trouble with anybody. Uh, you know, you don't want to say things about uh, people that uh, aren't necessary. Let me think. Positive anecdotes, maybe. Um, mm. You could do a negative one and not name the person. Hmm. Hmm. Was there anything that you really wanted in the book that is like at the last minute is like no you, either that can't go in or there's no room and you were like oh shame that I'll save it for volume two. I had a I had an interesting one once with uh, I did a song for 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 a film that Joel Schumacher had made. It's a really good film called uh, Veronica Guerin, and they had some score at the end and and they needed a needed a sort of tune so i i wrote this thing so i watched the film and i wrote this thing and i um i did a demo of it with a singer and uh and then i was gonna i was gonna the next day i was gonna fly to ireland and and uh 
do it with Sinead O'Connor. And Joel Schumacher rang me up and said, I hate it. Oh. I hate your song. I think it's mawkish and sentimental. And I hate the idea of it being at the end of my film. I was like, wow. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm meant to be going to record it tomorrow. He said, well, you might as well go and record it if you're meant to go and do it tomorrow. And I said, well, you know, the funny thing about songs is they can sound completely different when somebody else sings them. It's all down to the person, really, and whether you believe what they're singing. And this was just a session singing, you know. I got to Ireland, and of course, you know, I'm after, after somebody says that to you, you know, you're like kind of, what's Sinead O'Connor going to say to me, right? Mm. Shane O'Connor was, I love the fucking lyrics. They're great. Come on, let's get it done. And she was great. She sang it beautifully. And I finished it and it went off and it went at the end of the film. And about six weeks later, I was on a bus. I was on a train, I think. And Joel Schumacher rang me out of the blue. And he said, uh, that song at the end of the film, you were right, I was wrong. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, it's what I told you. So many good things, it sounds different. would have thought okay forget it then but you you pursued it because you believed in it well i pursued it because i had the ticket and Sinead o'connor was going to sing it and if we didn't do it it wouldn't happen and whatever you know and i actually thought it, he was just reacting to the straightness of the session singer you know mm -hmm. probably okay eight is single that should have been a bigger hit that you made oh that i made slave to the rhythm <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, about 1985, because you got three masterpieces that you were involved in. There was Cry, there was Slave to the Rhythm, and there was um, Dual Propaganda. And yeah. none of them got top ten. They're all masterpieces. And it feels like in the 80s, there was like a, a pre and post Live Aid. Dual was more, Dual was more lippo than me. Yeah, but you were still, yeah, you were still around. I, hel I helped on it and I sang the harmony on it, you know. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. Which part on the verse? Blow Bible, passion dies, little oh. death has been lies. Something like that. Excellent. Then okay. we start back time, I would say. It was, I've sung it live with her a couple of times. And when blow by blow, the passion dies, with little death just has been
So uh, it's just, uh, you get the feeling that if those had been released in 83, they'd have been top 10 hits. Did you feel like there was something was shifting in pop music around that time? No, I thought that Grace didn't promote uh, Slave to the Rhythm very well. And I thought um, because she kind of, she just didn't. It needed more promotion, even a record like that. You know what I mean? Just to sink mm. in. And I thought the Jewel, Jewel was one of those songs that um, wasn't just wasn't quite commercial enough to get past a certain point, but really helped sell the album. Because in the same way that something like with Seal, years later, you know, on the second album, initially, no one gravitated towards Kiss of a Rose. They thought there wasn't really a sing- hit single on the album, but they released Prayer for the Dying first, and they got to, they got to number one alternative radio, and it really helped sell that, begin that album, you know? And Duel was a bit like that. And the 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 sort of punk version, the one that L- Lippo mm. did, that I think I talk about in the book, yeah. I thought was amazing, uh, brilliant. That was still too left field to be like a top 10 record, you know? That's surprising because I was gutted during my interview with Stephen that he didn't rate Jewel, the single version, because I think it's a masterpiece. It's a pop masterpiece. and you He you didn't preferred... rate it either. No, he preferred the Jewel album version you're talking about. <laughs> Jewel, I hate it. Really? Yeah. You still hate it? hate hate's a very strong word i don't hate it i was never in any way satisfied with it you've got such a great chorus it's a great pop chorus it's one of those songs you hear and you immediately start like just tapping your feet and just like... i know i always thought it was so weak because <laughs> you still hear on 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 radio eight stations they play that all the time it's 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 lasted so well that song Jill, right? Oh, yeah wow. yeah okay um the best lyric you ever wrote the best lyric i ever wrote yes <laughs> well the, the, that's a funny question I, the, to me it, you know if you're going to ask that it would have to be you know video killed the radio star um, I also thought I mean serious shit I feel totally lost if I'm asking for help it's only because being with you has opened my eyes I thought that wasn't bad you know uh, considering it was quite a difficult brief. I'm in serious shit. I feel totally lost. If I'm asking for help, it's only because being with you has opened my eyes. Could I ever believe such a perfect surprise? I keep asking myself, wondering how. I keep closing my eyes, but I can't look you out. Wanna fly to a place where it's just you and me. Nobody else, so we can be free. Running through my head, running through my head, running through my head, all the things you said. 
Okay, McCartney, you talk about it's quite interesting that in the book you talk about the fact you're first of all given the offer to write with him. Do you ever regret turning that down, not having a McCartney Horn songwriting credit? No, I I wouldn't have felt comfortable enough. You, you know, it's like um, writing songs, you know, you've got to know the person that you're writing with, or there has to be something that you're writing for. That's always kind of easier. You know, I did, I did some music for a Japanese anime called The Reflection, mm-hmm. and we had to write two songs for it, and I really enjoyed writing the two songs, you know. You know, I worked with Chris Braid and Lol. And I always like writing with Bruce, you know, Bruce Woolley. You know, I, I don't sort of uh, go in for just writing with anybody. Uh, maybe I should. I mean, a good place to start, wouldn't it, Maka? Maybe. Mm. But I, I don't know. It just didn't feel like... I, I didn't want to be exposed like that, you know, mm. in a way, by trying to write something. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Sky Show, I think it's a great track. It reminds me, it's like a 21st century Buggles track, isn't it, Sky Show? Yeah. The first time I heard it, I assumed that John An- you'd got John Anderson in to do the vocal. And you do sound so much like John Anderson, don't you? That was funny, you know, that there was a bit of ego there because um, actually Janie Squire sang it much better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, fuck it, it's my track. Yeah, well, well, absolutely. Yeah. I love the um, the anecdote in in the book about um, you ordered a pizza, the salami pizza, right? At Macca's place, and then when it came with a, as a margarita, you said, well, "Yeah, sorry, this is wrong. It should have been a salami one." At what point did you twig that that was intended? And the crew kind of let me down. Partly <laughs> had a very loyal crew. Yeah, probably still has. Okay, here's a good one. Who would play you in a movie of your life? And what time period would the film cover? Oh, my God. Daniel Radcliffe. That's so weird you said that. I was thinking of that just earlier. <laughs> that is so weird because he's played Weird Al Yankovic, yeah? Yeah. I thought that's not a good... I don't know why he's played him. He, Trevor Horn would be perfect. That is so weird you said that. <laughs> and what time period would the film cover? Oh, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. I don't think anyone's going to make a film of uh, my life like that. That's one of the good things about the book is uh, I, I love the um, book ending of the, the concert you did in, in 2004. Yeah. That's a perfect, that's a very cinematic device. You start with the present day with everyone together that you've worked with and you go back to the past and then you end, flash forward back to the how yeah. you started. Well, you've, it's a book. You've got to put some shape into it. Uh, this one says karma and fate. So... You too. You almost worked with you too, but didn't because they'd heard you give the bass player the heave ho and ABC. Mm-hmm. And then um, I interviewed. I interviewed Stephen Lips, and he talked about um, when he worked with the Rolling Stones. 
And he'd asked Mick Jagger for a raise, and Mick Jagger said, no, I could get somebody else to do the same for the same money. And later, you tell me if this is true or not, um, he was going to work with you on a solo album, and you turned him down because of that? Does, does that ring any bells? Yeah, of course it does, yeah. But what it was, was I didn't really want to do it. I didn't fancy the idea of Mick Jagger without the Rolling Stones. Mm. Yeah, I'd grown up with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, and I, I didn't know if I wanted to do it. And then, you know, I said, well, you know, we'll get together and my engineer and it'll be a hundred pounds. And they started challenging the hundred pounds. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this. Forget it. And I blew it out. Yeah, I think that's what I said to Stephen. Like, life's too short for a Mick Jagger solo album, isn't there? Well, well, you know, he, he, he had a couple of good tunes. Mick Jagger's a regret. You know, I have a lot of respect for him. He's an incredible front man. And I love the Stones, and they still put on a great show, even though everyone's old. It's if you like rock, you know, rock and roll played by you know, English people, it doesn't come any better, you know. Yeah, I don't think I've ever forgiven him for "Let's Work." I think is a, is a <laughs> pretty terrible song, especially from a rock star to sing. You know, let's work. Dollar singles. I've got to ask you about the dollar singles. I, I think as I was speaking to Gary Lang and I described them as oral glitter balls of delight. These four perfectly shaped jewels, pop jewels. And I love your quote about um, dollar in the book. No denying the aroma of cruise liner that hung around dollar. Which I think is a brilliant line. Do you think it's possible that your greatest achievement is making David Van Day call for nine months? <laughs> David Van Day will always be cool to me. <laughs> I do uh, have a great affection for David Van Day. I have to admit. And I have to say, I have to say, I, I, uh, I tried to, uh, I tried to put a vocal on a version of "Give Me Back My Heart" for Teresa. I found it really hard. It made me realize how good David was. You know, he was good. He could deliver it. If you wrote the song, he got the tune. He delivered. He had a voice, you know? Yeah, it was surprising watching the live version on your concert. Uh, yeah. He could still sing it. it yeah. Really I feel so silly when I tell you I gave you all I had It seems so empty when I say that I And is it true you wrote um, Handheld in Black and White and Mirror, Mirror in the same afternoon? That yeah, that was me and Bruce. We, we were in a, in a, you know, we got together and we were talking about Dollar. And the first idea was something fast, you know, Handheld in Black and White, like a picture, you know, quick picture of them in various places. And 
and that was one and mirror mirror the idea that they they sort of mirrored each other and and you know uh that kind of stuff yeah in one afternoon it was it was uh good afternoon that afternoon bruce is good to write with you see because then bruce would nail me he'd say like we're not going to do a demo of this song until you write the second verse <laughs> so i'd have to sweat and write the lyric for because i generally wrote the lyric and bruce wrote the tune yeah i'd write the lyric he'd sing it basically that was the deal you know whatever most of the time of course he come up with lines here and there all the time but he would always insist on having the second verse so i'd have to sing you know in a moment saying yeah i will freeze the frame and go my feelings for you right you know like but it was a good discipline because uh so many times people send me songs and you know there, there isn't a second verse or there's a couple of giant lyrics and so yeah this sort of um, idea of this sort of world that they lived in well i did anyway you know but mirror mirror i spent ages i had a studio at home and after pandel in black and white i'd got a tr808 and i got a this is for all the nerds <laughs> i had a roland sequencer it was a step sequencer that you put lists of notes in you know you sort of go into record and put eight d's in it you know what i mean so it would trigger eight d you know, you know those kind of things mm. you had different banks They're very primitive but it worked right and i had that hooked up to a mini moog the cv and gate not midi right and dave uh the, the the guy that does the uh dave simmons had put a set of triggers on the side of my 808 where all of the instruments came out as triggers and i also i also had a set of uh simmons modules and i could trigger all of this from the tr808 and lock the sequencer to it it involved a few pushing and pulling as it went along but i me and my brother-in-law who's now a rabbi in uh in the very religious part of jerusalem john spent a whole week in my home studio i used to call my home studio despair studios right so i'm working in despair um, <laughs> programming uh mirror mirror and it's all programmed into an 808 and a mini moog with me playing a keyboard on top of it and simmons drum modules you know so that's why mirror mirror sounds so kind of dinky do me and john made the whole record together you know i think simon dala might have helped a bit but then giving back my heart was ann dudley it was the first big session with ann dudley and she was great and i had all of that i had some great gags for that one the, you know the la 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 they were, they were terrific so, yeah the, the, if ever anyone asked me why i love 80s music i would say listen to those four dollar singles and it's all there yeah because you could only have done it in the 80s it's yeah. uniquely 80s about those songs that makes them so perfect yeah the, um the thing about gags um i think Stephen Lipson talked about slave to the rhythm you you that was the song where you're going to be strip the gags just to make a great song but there's like one gag in it which is in the second verse where that beat comes in a bit early 
Yeah. So what was the thing about gags that you like so much? Is it just quirks that make so- a song a bit different? Or? Well, no, no, no. That enslaved the rhythm uh, was just, I thought the second verse would, was dragging. And I, I wondered what would happen if we took a beat out. We just took a beat out and put a three, you know, made a three, four bar in. In it. And it worked because it sort of emphasized that it gave a moment in the middle of the verse and, and stopped it rambling and took out that moment where you might have just got bored with it. Gags were, you know, Lippo and I did some crazy gags. But then, you know, we kind of, if you think about it, after Propaganda and Frankie, there was sort of less gaggy stuff, you know? Yeah, all gagged out. All gagged out, mate. Okay. Yeah. Which 80s song do you wish you had produced? <laughs> Which 80s song do I wish I had produced? Um, oh, I should think about it. Uh, think about mm. that. Um, hmm. Was Run DMC Walk This Way with Aerosmith? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to have produced that. That was a great record. And would you have done anything differently if you had produced? No. no. I would have tried to get it like that. <laughs> <laughs> How many golden platinum discs do you own, and where are they? I I uh, I don't have any any up anywhere. I, I I don't put gold discs and things up, but I've got sort of funny awards around the place. Your Grammys and your Brits, you keep yeah, them. Yeah, over there I've got a Simple Minds uh, platinum CD for Belfast Child. I've, but I I don't have much around the place. It's not like a my house isn't a temple to me. <laughs> Giving loads of mine away. Charity really? or whatever, you know. Do you not feel any kind of emotional attachment to them or anything? No. No. Okay. Uh Karen Clayton. Ah. Karen Clayton. Okay, so she was a receptionist at Psalm, yeah? Mm-hmm. And Gary's girlfriend at the time? I don't know that she was Gary's girlfriend. Okay, well, that's what he said. Ah. Okay. <laughs> and she does a spoken bit on Poison Arrow. Yeah. I thought you loved me, but it seems you don't care. I can't love to know. I can never love you. And, and on the, the goodbye on Look of Love. Goodbye. No, she's not the goodbye on Look of Love. Really? That's what Gary said. Yeah, the goodbye is, is the girl that actually dumped Martin, came down from Sheffield to do it. 
Okay. Who was that? I don't know her name, but but she was the girl that caused the lexicon of love. Oh, that was Martin's girlfriend, ex-girlfriend. Yeah, ex-girlfriend. Okay, so that I was her then. And spoke on uh, close to the edit. Yeah, to be in England. Yes. Yeah. To be in England in the summertime with my love close to the edge. Did she get paid for the same? She like given payment for the session as a like a vocalist. I don't remember. I honestly <laughs> don't remember. Has she? Have you spoken to her? Gary mentioned the fact that she wasn't paid for the session or something. Probably not. No. No. What's the one thing nobody knows about any one of your hits? <laughs> well, if I say it, everybody will know it. Biggest professional disappointment of the eighties. If you're just talking professionally, uh, mm-hmm. you know when the second Frankie album might kind of uh, that was a disappointment. So, how uh, involved were you with that? Were you? I came on back onto it towards the end. It helps to finish it. But it, 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 it you know, we, it, it was, the problem was the enthusiasm of the band, you know, and the, and the sort of communication between them and the fact that the songs just hadn't been thought about enough. In a few mm. yeah? yeah. Anyway. Uh, Best single professional moment of the 80s? You could just get it to one moment. What would be the moment you'd pick? Um, I think, um, I always think um, when they tell me the control of the BBC was on the phone and I thought he was going to bollock me uh, for putting a reference to cocaine at the end of Buffalo Girls. And so I was a bit nervous, and it turned out I was getting the DJ's uh, award for the year for best records. So, oh, fair enough. Okay, so cool. I was kind of taken aback. Yeah, it wasn't what I was expecting. You did mention in the book that at the same time you had the UK and US number one with different songs. Yeah. That surely has never happened before or since. No. That's pretty special. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a nice thing to say. Yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah. <laughs> the Eternal Jukebox. Okay, um, I've got a thing called The Eternal Jukebox, where all music is wiped, but you get to keep three songs of yours. So which three songs would you keep from the 80s of yours? Uh, well, what do you want me to say, really? I'd probably keep Left to My Own Devices, Slave to the Rhythm, and uh, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. The album version, obviously. Obviously, then it's long. Left to my own devices, to the river. Oh, that's three brilliant choices. And finally, finally, we got there. We got there, Trevor. We're at the end. Um, three words to describe your 80s. Three words to describe? Yes. Distill to the essence your 80s in three words. Well, you could say exciting new technology, but you'd have to say exciting new new music technology or new musical technology this is the end of the interview thank you very much so that was the interview with the great trevor horn one question i wish i'd thought to ask when i got the kiss of the intro bits uh, the random questions with trevor horn bit i felt like it should have been sir trevor horn it would have sounded like random questions with sir trevor horn so why isn't it why isn't he a sir when you think of all the people that are 
It's weird that he isn't. He should be. I'm a rubbish podcast host. I know. You get interviews to plug a book and then you don't even mention it during the interview or even before. So Trevor's book is Adventures in Modern Recording from ABC to ZTT. Great title. And it's a great book. A fascinating read. And he does the audio book too, which I must check out. That'd be great to hear him actually read it. If you love 80s music, which I assume you do, hello, uh, it's a must-have purchase. And it was a very interesting response in the interview to the worst track you've ever done, or you did in the 80s, his answer to that. reveals so much about what made a Trevor Horn Trevor Horn that he didn't have one. So I, there is no bad track. Um, I never expected that as an answer, ever. But that's, that's what made him the one others looked up to in the 80s. A very illuminating answer, I thought. I have to thank Nikki at Bonnier Books for helping to set up the interview with Trevor. Um, she never gave up on me. It took months to nail Trevor down. Not literally, that would be messy and somewhat disrespectful. But she never forgot me and, and dealt with me with great kindness and great humour. So thank you, Nikki. And I'm eternally grateful as this was a bucket list moment for me. I cannot emphasise that enough. Now I just have Nile to get. Uh, you can contact Trevor in all the usual places on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if, if you like the episode and you'd like to help contribute towards costs, because I really want to avoid using adverts. I can't tell you how many podcasts I've stopped listening to because of the bloody adverts. They're so relentless and constantly intrusive. And I, I really want to avoid using them. But at the same time, I do see the advantage of using them to help cover your costs. So if you'd like to contribute, uh, it is via PayPal, hisography at gmail.com. And thank you to all those who already have. Anyway, enough waffle. Let's get out of here with a song I've loved since uh, former guest Gary Langan had it as one of his three eternal jukebox choices from Trevor and Buggles. I remember last summer driving home from Gatwick from our holiday, family holiday, on the motorway at half past midnight, kids asleep in the back. And this coming on, it being the perfect soundtrack, really. Mesmerising and calming, but also kind of grabs your attention, which is always very good when you drive on the motorway at, at 20 to 1 in the morning. I love you. I love you, Miss Robot. Now listen to this and uh, we'll feed us in.
to be in England in the summertime with my love. Close to the end. The end. Say it again. <laughs> Random okay. questions. Random questions without laughing. Random questions without laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to do that.